You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Bicycle Retail Radio, presented by the National Bicycle Dealer Association. My name's Pat Hoos, and I will be the host for today's discussion. With me on the line is George Gatto. Welcome, George. Hey, Pat. So George is the owner and president of Three Rivers Harley-Davidson, Gatto Harley-Davidson, and Gatto Cycle Shop, which is a motorcycle shop, but also owns Gatto Cycle Shop, the bike shop in the greater Pittsburgh market. George has been in the bike industry, motorcycle industry for years and years, and he's going to share some of his background with you in just a minute. But I'm excited because I think this promises to be a great conversation. George and I go way back to my Cannondale days and uh, looking forward to catching up and sharing some of our war stories. But just a quick background on me. My name's again, Pat Hoos. I've been in the bicycle industry for 40 plus years. Hard to believe. Kind of scary that I can actually say that. My dad bought a bike shop when I was 14 and worked there for a number of years, ran a shop in college, led to an outside independent rep position, which led to an opportunity at Cannondale. I was at Cannondale for about eight years. Great time there during the 90s in their heyday eventually went on to American Bicycle Group down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that led to an opportunity to run a boutique mountain bike brand Titus Cycles back in the early 2000s. And from there, I went on to a brief stint at Easton Bell Sports and eventually landed at Interbike. And I ran Interbike for about seven years, unfortunately, till its demise in 2018. Still sad about that one. And then I was at a brief stint most recently with Bravo Sports, which was Nutcase Helmets and 661. Today, I'm doing some consulting work in the industry and looking for that next opportunity, hopefully something in the very near future. So that's me, but George, tell us a little bit about you and your family and your background in bikes and what you've been doing lately. Wow, let's see here, my dad, so I'm second generation, my dad who's in his 80s, started in 1964 with an auto body shop. Um, he was a car guy. He did uh, a lot of fiberglass work, and he was one of the few guys around that did fiberglass work, so he did a lot of Corvettes. So I have this affinity for old Corvettes and muscle cars from my dad being a kid. He brought motorcycles into the sideline, and uh, my mom, who was equal partners in the business, and his dad was the typical entrepreneur, could sell anything. Mom did the books. She understood the numbers, and they made a great partnership. So he went from auto body Motorcycles is a sideline. He opened up a little bicycle store in the motorcycle shop. And about that time is when he got out of the auto body business. I was in like 10th grade. And uh, the person that ran the bicycle shop left for some health issues. And my dad said, I need you to run the bicycle shop. So that's how I got in the bicycle business. I ran this little store within the motorcycle store. I grew up in the motorcycle store. In the 10th grade, I was running my own bicycle dealership. That's awesome. All right. So now you're in the bike business but it's kind of a, a secondary business to motorcycle. But at some point, the family decided we really should put more emphasis in the bike side. What year are we talking about where you guys said, let's go bigger in bikes? So it was really when I got out of college, which would have been 84, 85, I decided that uh, I loved the bicycle business. I love the people. People that know me know I'm more of a business guy than I am an enthusiast. I mean, that's really, I mean, what I'm enthusiastic about are probably muscle cars and snow skiing and boating, and, and I'm not in that business. Business is work. You know, I went to college, done with college, started bicycles. I bought a second, third, fourth, fifth store. We were doing about $4 bucks a year in bicycles. I was loving it. 
And then uh, the ground started to crumble beneath my feet. There was a lot of consolidation. I mean, you lived through that, Pat. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it, was, it was ugly. Yep. It was ugly. And when that happened, I sat down with my parents and said, you know, emotionally, I am 101% tied to this bicycle business. But monetarily, you know, we're not making a lot of money with it. And we, we're making a lot of money with our Harley store. So uh, I decided at that point to buy a second Harley Davidson dealership. But that was in 07, right before the recession. Great timing on my part. <laughs> I bought our largest competitor in Pittsburgh. Um, right before the recession, I had monthly payments that were more than probably most people in the bicycle industry make in a year. And uh, we made it through. And um, I split our existing store into Harley and Power Sports. And back in those days, I was actually thinking about getting out of Power Sports because the margins were so good in Harley. It's just an awesome, awesome company to do business with. They were great partners. But, you know, times have been tough on Harley. And this year, you know, it kind of feels like uh, there's been this massive paradigm shift. And the metric business, the, the power sports business, is booming. And the yeah, Harley business is struggling. Yeah, I'm going to dive into that a little bit later on in the conversation because I definitely want to hear what's going on in that world. So in that decision to acquire your competitor, is that simultaneous with you guys deciding to exit the four other stores? Yes. And that was really my decision. I was the bicycle guy. My dad, I love him to death. He's a great guy, but he's, I was the oldest son of four and he was really hard on me and uh, bicycles. As long as I was profitable, he let me do what I wanted. And, um, you know, he's Italian, you know, and with Italian comes that temper, you know, bicycles, you know, I, I could do what I wanted as long as I made money and he left me alone. And then when it started to consolidate, you know, I just sat down with him. I mean, it was really emotional, Pat. I mean, I'm yeah. not an emotional guy. I'm pretty even killed. And I sat down with him and said, you know, I hate to say this, but this bicycle thing's going down the toilet. We need to look at something else. And there was Harley staring me in the face. You know, I was comfortable being a bicycle dealer. I was comfortable with all the people. You know, Harley, it was a different breed back then. And um, it was very uncomfortable for me. It took me a few years to get comfortable with it. So you sold four, or you closed four stores, if I'm not mistaken. You didn't even sell the businesses, did you? I talked about selling it. I had several people interested in buying it, but they wanted our last name, which is Gatto, which was our brand. I couldn't sure. sell the last name. And at that point, gotcha. I just said, fine, I'll just, I'll close one at a time. I'll sell the buildings or I'll, I'll walk, you know, when the leases are up. So I methodically, you know, closed one store at a time as the leases came up or I was able to sell the property. And we walked away from it, except with, we kept one store. You know, we walked away from all that. We didn't lose money. You know, I didn't have to go through some liquidation or close out or whatever. It was, it was methodically thought out and we made money with it and uh, it all worked out. Any regrets looking back now? I mean, was it the right decision or do you, is there parts that you kind of go, Don, I wish I still had those stupid things. Well, I miss the people. I mean, I yeah. miss you. I miss, you know, you make friends for life. I made a lot of friends when I was on the MBDA board. I mean, Chris Kegel, I mean, what a loss, Chris Kegel, what a loss, Leslie Baum, um, exactly. Jay Graves. I picked up the phone not long ago and called Jay Graves up and said, hey, buddy, <laughs> I haven't talked to you in years. What are you doing? <laughs> um, I saw a, po I, I listened to a podcast. Yes, he is. And I'm still working six day weeks. I wonder <laughs> who's the smarter of the two. I listened to Dan Thornton's podcast not long ago. And, you know, I met Dan through the NBDA board. So really a long answer to a short question. I miss the people. And that's really all I miss is the people. Well, so tell me about the shop that you guys have. What brands do you guys carry? What's Is it a healthy business? Or is it something that you guys, it's kind of an afterthought? How do you view the bike shop that you guys still have? So I had a guy that worked for me for many, many years. I made the mistake of saying, 
if it stays profitable, we'll keep it. If it loses money, it goes. He kept it profitable, so it's still there. <laughs> awesome. That's great, though. Yeah, brands, we still carry Cannondale. I mean, we carried Cannondale back before they made bicycles. You know, we used to buy the bags from Connecticut. Love dealing with Scott and Joe Montgomery and the crew up there. We still carry Giant. We recently picked up Batch. We do GT. You know, we have a few Schwins. I mean, right now, there's no product. So, you know, the floor is pretty much sitting there empty. If I could find somebody that had bikes, I'd buy them. But it sounds like everybody's out of product. So, Well, nice segue, because that was going to be my next conversation piece, is to talk about you know, what's happening with the craziness of the pandemic. And then obviously in your world, you're experiencing the same thing that we as an industry are all experiencing. And that's the supply line just being drained completely. But, you know, you can't get angry about it because nobody saw this coming and everybody trying to react as, you know, you can see it, but it's just not filling the pipeline. And I don't know how long that's going to take to where the bike industry gets back to you know availability it's going to be a little while i talked to jt yeah. at giant and he said pat we're we're in a position where we're going to be scrambling all the way through the first two quarters of 2021 and i don't think he's unusual i think everybody's facing that same battle right now but talk to me about how things are going in the bike side from your perspective and then what's happening in the motorcycle world how has this pandemic impacted your business in moto well, the bicycle side, I mean, it's such a small portion of our business. I mean, we're over $20 million a year. So, you know, the bicycle side, is it's tiny. It's probably, uh, it's probably about a half a million bucks a year of that store. And that used to be a million-dollar store years ago. We don't put the effort into it that we should. I mean, we don't really advertise it. It just kind of exists. But, you know, I'll back up and say that with all the talk and everything I keep reading about, you know, e-bikes are upon us and seeing some parts of the country starting to sell e-bikes, we did bring some e-bikes in. We've not been real successful with them. But, you know, even, you know, I'm in a garage composites uh, 20 group. And a lot of discussions with the power sports dealers about e-bikes. I mean, uh, you know, there's guys picking them up. There's guys looking at picking them up. So, you know, I get off on a little tangent here. But, you know, one of the reasons that we stayed in bicycles could work out that, you know, if e-bikes take off, we're already ingrained in that business. But as far as getting sure. product, you know, there's nothing. You can't get anything in bicycles. I mean, you can't get helmets, tires, tubes. And although I'm not angry, I mean, I'm sure all the other retailers see how angry the customers get when they come and saying, you know, I need a tire for my mountain bike. And it's like, we don't have any. When will you get some? Well, we don't, we can't get them. What do you mean you can't get them? Can't you order them? Yes, they're on order. Well, when are you going to get them? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You know, it, it ends up to being this big, long conversation and they start to get mad. And, uh, you know, we're seeing the same thing in the power sports business. Honda, Suzuki, Kawasaki, Yamaha sold out everything. Can't get anything. One of our largest Power Sports Distributors, great distributor. The president of that company is actually a gentleman that I know from Harley-Davidson, and he basically told me their fill rate is 57%. That's it. I mean, we can't get half of what we order. And they're working diligently to fix that, but you know, the problem is manufacturing. They can't fill the demand quick enough. Uh, yeah. Harley, on the other hand, so Harley P&A and accessories have been a problem, but with the issues with Harley, so what we're seeing in the power sports industry People with stimulus money and people with, you know, unemployment making, you know, they're making more money than they've ever made. They're coming in, they're buying lower priced. So like street bikes, 750cc and down, can't keep them on stock, especially 600, 400, 250. Can't keep them. The good news there is those are a lot of new riders coming into the industry. Yeah. And, you know, Harley and some of these other companies have spent massive amounts of money to get new riders. And it was working a little bit. 
you know, took a pandemic to get people to start buying small street bikes. So there's a lot of new riders coming in. So that's a big plus for the industry. The other big plus is kids. People are buying kids' dirt bikes, kids' ATVs. They're buying ATVs and side-by-side, UTVs, because they can do it as a family. So we're seeing a lot of new riders coming into that side of the sport, which is a big plus for the industry. And again, it took a pandemic for that to happen. But the motorcycle power sport side, a lot like bicycles, can't get anything. Harley, the parts are hard to get, but the new vehicles are not selling as well as the used vehicles are. And it's because of the differentiation of the price of new to used. The negative with used is the prices have gone through the roof. So used is really scarce. Harley, they brought a new CEO in, and he was the guy that turned Puma around years ago. And uh, he basically has cut back on new vehicle production, which they probably needed to do. But personally, I think he cut it back too much. So new vehicles are really scarce, and they're going to be scarce for the rest of the year. So there's a long explanation to another short question. No, no, no. But you know what? The parallels are very interesting because the bike industry is seeing the same thing. We're seeing new entrants, right? We're seeing people and the kids thing, not unlike moto, is blowing up in bike. Kids bikes were the first things that were wiped out on the shelves in the bike shops because all these people are home with their kids going, how do we entertain these kids? Let's get them outside. Yeah. And so we've had a ton of new entry ton of the repair business has gone off the charts, as I'm sure you've seen in moto as well. And not having tires and tubes, people are wheeling these old bikes in with spider webs and saying, can you change the tires? And there's no tires to put on them. And almost every shop that I talk to is two weeks to 30 days on repairs. Yeah, it's crazy. We are too. Yep. It's a good problem, but it's a bad problem because if we turn people off now, we can't satisfy that spike in demand, it's going to be a missed opportunity. But the other thing we're seeing is an embracing mayors and municipal groups that want to create more places for people to ride. So there's a huge opportunity as an industry to take advantage of that wind at our sails and get some of these things that we've kind of been fighting to get. Now we've got momentum. Let's go get this stuff done and create safer places for people to ride and keep these new entrants engaged, keep them excited about riding bikes. That's the part that I get excited about. That's a great point, Pat, because, I mean, you've got to control what you can control. And we can't control that the, you know, we can't control, we can't get product, but you sure can control, you know, how you treat people and then, of course, have places to ride. That's really good stuff. It's exciting. And, you know, People for Bikes is the advocacy arm of our industry, and they're all over it. And they've got new leadership there, but, and she's, this Jen Dice is terrific and she's got marching orders and she's going after it. So I'm confident we're going to be able to capitalize on this, but just can't happen fast enough in my mind. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, I think it'd be interesting for our audience, George, to talk a little bit about the parallels and then the differences between bicycle and motorcycle industries. And I know you've alluded to some of this stuff already, So let's talk a little bit about the differences. So, you know, in the world of bicycles, you know, bike margins are what they are and accessory margins are where you want to make your, that's where the real opportunity, that and labor. Is it the same in moto? How are things different? How does it vary between import brands and Harley for, as another example? The difference between you know, the metrics, the metric comes from Harley. <laughs> so the guys in my metric 20 group are always telling me it's power sports, George, it's power sports. We're going to find you every time you say metric, but that's 30 years of being a Harley dealer 
I keep saying metric, but they're very different from each other. On the power sports side, traditionally, the margins on new vehicles were very low. There were too many dealers. There was too much product. We always had a lot of aged inventory, so we're always dumping inventory. The vendors always had aged inventory, and they're dumping, you know, one, two, three-year-old vehicles. So the margins on new was not very good. The brands where I could make a better margin are the brands we focus our business on. Even though I may like the brand or they may have a better name, we go where we can make the money. What's changed now is that because of such a shortage of product, we're making full pop on every vehicle that we sell. There are no discounts. We're also getting freight and prep. And then we make a little bit of money in the F&I side with financing. You'll make a little bit of money on the interest on the loan. You'll make a little bit of money if they'll buy like their extended service policy, which is an important thing to have, especially for off-road vehicles. So it used to be we didn't make a lot of money in the unit. We'd make the money in the F&I. We'd make money on parts, accessories, clothing, and service. Now we're making most of the money on the new unit, on the F&I. The P&A business on the power sports side, a lot of it's gone to the internet, and it's been a real problem. I know it's the same thing happened in bicycles or still happening in bicycles. Harley, on the other hand, we made our money on the unit up front. We made money on the F&I. The margins on clothing were not good. And they're typically 30, maybe 40% wow. um, at the most. That's low. Yeah, it's low margins. And Harley clothing is not cheap. I mean, you know, 100 bucks, 120 bucks for a shirt is no big deal. You know, 40 bucks right. for a t-shirt, that's what they are. So the margins there aren't real strong. P&A margins are stronger. We used to sell the vehicle and then they would accessorize the heck out of it. When money gets tight, they back off on the accessorization. They just don't accessorize as much and they buy less clothing. So really, Harley's been, the money there has been the units in the F&I, not the other products. This podcast is brought to you by MBDA membership and industry donors. To continue providing education and content like the podcast you're listening to now, we need your support. Go to mbda.com and join or donate today. Well, so in terms of margins on the bikes, like in the bicycle industry, uh, I think, you know, most people on this listening to this podcast would say that their margins on bikes are typically anywhere from, you know, 30 to 32 on the high end bikes up to as much as 40 points on some of their higher volume sub thousand dollar price points. And they are not happy about it. And understandably, when you shake out to an average margin of 34, 35 points and your cost of doing business is close to that, it makes it kind of hard to make it work but I don't think they understand motorcycle unit margins. What would you say are your margins on average import versus Harley? So before the pandemic, I would say the metric side was probably up oh, power sports. I said that wrong. Power sports. I'm going to get fined. Okay. Power sports side was probably five, 6% of front end gross. Now you got to add your F and I dollars in there too, which can be fairly substantial. In fact, some cases you're making more in F and I than you are on the front end gross of a vehicle. Now, you know, we're probably making 15, 16% front end gross plus the F&I dollars. On the Harley side, you're probably, I don't know, new, you're probably 18, 19% on new plus the F&I dollars, which are substantial used. It depends how well you buy and what it takes to refurbish them. So guys in my 20 group, I've seen them as low as 14%. I've seen guys as high as probably 22% on used. So you're looking at much bigger dollars. You know, you're looking at... yeah. You know, the cheapest Harley is eight thousand dollars, and they go up in almost fifty grand. So right, yeah, you're not selling five hundred dollar front suspension bikes. Correct. Yeah. So 
we've talked a lot about Harley and, you know, it's a brand that's been admired for years and years. And it's, it's such an iconic brand. And, you know, I think there are brands in the bike industry that like to compare themselves to Harley, which is a, I always kind of chuckle because I just feel like Harley's taken it to another level. And I don't think there's anybody in our bike industry that can align themselves with Harley at this point. I know they aspire to it, but right now I don't see them being there. So talk to the bike shop owners. How does Harley treat its retail? How does it support its retailers? Because it's, I mean, you and I have had this conversation before and it's been a great lesson for me to learn and just go, you're kidding. <laughs> wow. Why don't the bike suppliers <laughs> listen and do this? So maybe you can give us a couple of examples and why Harley is so important to your business. So, I mean, Harley is one of the most recognized brands in the world. So, you know, Harley Davidson, I've seen reports that they have a better brand recognition than like Coca-Cola or Ford or, you know, Chevrolet. I mean, that's how well recognized they are. So they are in a complete other category. When I hear bicycle companies back in the day that would try to compare themselves for Harley, I did more than chuckle. I mean, I outright did the LOL because it's, <laughs> you know, bicycles are a commodity compared to Harley Davidson. So Harley is a company. So, I mean, part of it is people. Now, the new CEO, I don't know. He's only been there a few months. I don't know him. The former CEO, I have a cell phone number. I could call him anytime I wanted to call him, and I did call him. He knows me by my first name. I know him by his first name. We had a great relationship with most of the upper management at Harley, and that's how they operate. They have best in industry training for their dealers. So I know that there are a few bike vendors that started do training for their dealers, and I applaud them for that. I know that you know when I was on the MBDA board, we had worked really hard to do a lot of training. They were in the process of putting 20 groups together when I left, and I know that they do have 20 groups now. That's very important. I mean, training is good, but a 20 group, when you can look at numbers of your peers and you can see where you're doing a great job and where you're doing a bad job, and then you can communicate with those dealers that are doing a great job where I'm not, and I can, you know, they'll share with you what they're doing because you don't compete and it'll help you to improve those areas. So 20 groups are just huge. Harley has a point of sale system. It's fully integrated. We do everything from selling the vehicle, the F&I. Harley knows what we're selling, when we're selling. So they know, you know, not just vehicles, but they know some little $2 part, what they need to stock heavier on because they know what's selling. We have access with some great reporting to really measure everything in a dealership. I mean, I, my fingertips, I can look at reports to see, you know, payroll percentage per department, aged inventory reports. And frankly, that's what I spend most of my time doing. I, I kind of oversee what's going on with, you know, inventory levels, payroll levels. If we're up, if we're down, we set goals, are we hitting goals? You know, and Harley is where I learned all this. Unfortunately, I didn't learn this at Penn State. We have reps that actually show up and do their jobs. I mean, when I was in the bicycle industry, and hopefully that's changed now, but <laughs> some of the worst reps on the planet were some of the biggest branded bicycle companies I dealt with, and it just blew me away. They also have training in the dealership. They had this program called Performance Consulting. They changed the name of it now, but they'll actually send consultants to your dealership, and they'll help you. You know, Maybe you brought a new parts manager in, and they don't know how to run the parts department. They'll come in, and they'll help you. These are the key measurements you need to look at. These are, you know, look at some of your measurements and where are you holding up? Where do you need work? And they'll send people into the store to help you with these things. Now, you know, with COVID, obviously none of this is happening. You know, I've always taken full advantage of all the training they've had. I've taken full advantage of the relationships. And, um, you know, the 20 group thing, again, I can't say how important the 20 group is. It's just, 
I manage my business through the 20 group. Well, you know, and I've been listening and hearing about Harley's investment in the retail channel and it's, and obviously their marketing is off the charts because it, it kind of, if you go back and you look at Harley, it wasn't because the product was the, the highest quality standard set. Harley used to have a bad reputation. And if I'm not mistaken, and you can speak to that better, but yet despite that reputation, they built a rapport and a reputation with their retailers and have gradually improved the product, of course. But when they started this whole march, it was not with great product. It was more about the service and the support of the retailer. Am I right? Yes. So in the 70s, Harley-Davidson was purchased by AMF, American Machine and Foundry. Their goal was they were numbers oriented. Let's increase production, increase production, increase production, sell more, sell more, sell more. And they did that. The good news was Harley had a lot of antiquated systems and many antiquated manufacturing machines and processes. And AMF, the good part of AMF was that they brought that up, even though the volume was so high that the quality was bad. Harley bought themselves back off of AMF in 81, 82. And at that point, the benefit from AMF was that they had better quality manufacturing processes in place. So they took the production levels down to a regular, you know, more regular number and they just focused on quality, quality, quality. And, you know, the quality was pretty bad. The AMF years, it wasn't very good in the early eighties by the mid late eighties, Harley was booming. I mean, everybody wanted to ride a Harley Davidson and it wasn't because it was, you know, quality or not quality. It was more, it was the image. It was yep. the brand. When you talk to corporate people from Harley, they talk a lot about the brand. You know, we as dealers, we are stewards of the brand. And yep. if you do something bad and you're not supporting the brand, you're out, man. You know, there was a dealer, and this is crazy, but he, he had somebody filmed a porn movie in this guy's dealership. Well, guess who's not a dealer, you know, very quickly after that. There was recently yeah. a dealer down in uh, Tennessee that put some really nasty comments out there about Black Lives Matter. And the guy, you know, the comments were the most racist, bigoted thing I've ever seen in my life. Guess who's not a Harley Davidson dealer? They shut wow. him right off, man. They don't mess around. They're great partners, but, you know, you don't represent the brand properly, man. You're out. Yeah, good for them. I mean, that's what that's how you defend a brand. And I applaud that. Do you think that they've pulled up the industry in general? Do you find the power sports, the import brands have learned from and watched Harley do what they've done? Have they elevated their game to match it? Well, the Japanese brands, I mean, there's some great brands out there, but they're in Japan and they're worldwide. You know, Harley's based here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the bulk of their sales are U.S. based, although they are worldwide. Them, Harley being based here, it's, it's a little different. Like, I know a bunch of people at Harley, and I, you know, six months ago I knew more because they've changed upper management, but there's this whole relationship. I need something, man. I know who to call. I can pick up the phone. Those guys, if they're in Pittsburgh, like Matt Levitich, the former CEO, when he was in Pittsburgh negotiating with the union, he'd stop at my store. And he'd come in and say hi to me, but he'd spend half hour, 45 minutes with my team and even with customers. What's working? What's not working? You're receiving over here. What's your biggest issue with receiving? What's your biggest issues with warranty? I mean, this is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company coming into my little store in Pittsburgh asking all these questions. They did a thing at one point that was a, uh, God, I can't remember what they called it. But they would actually send one of the executives to your store to work for like three or four days just to get a feel for retail because I got to tell you, most of the vendors and dealers, you know, we want to align our views. You know, we, we want to be partners, but 
vendors' goals and needs are a lot different than what a dealer's goals and needs are. So you've got to find that common ground. I will say a lot of people at Harley are manufacturing people. They're distribution people. You know, they may have marketing people or they're not retailers. And you know, they at least had the interest to come in and learn about retail. And uh, they needed to do that because, again, they're not retailers. They don't see it. I'll tell a quick story. I hired a guy that worked for Harley Corporate for years. He actually would train service departments on how to run service. We hired him. Loved the guy. Great guy. His head was spinning. Even though he would train us how to run our service department, when he was actually in the service department, you know, trying to run a service department, it's a whole different ballgame. It's a great point, George. I think, uh, and that's common in the bike industry, I think the wholesale side think they understand the retail channel, but in many cases, they don't. Although those lines are getting more and more blurred as the brands really dive deeper and deeper into owning retail. Trek is pretty clearly on, on a march to own distribution and Specialized has their share and Giant's doing some of that as well. And so they're learning through their own stores and that's progress. I think that's benefiting the whole distribution network. So that's a good thing. So, hey, I'm going to shift gears again. We've seen what's happening in e-bikes. You mentioned it earlier. You've dabbled a little bit. Harley is supposedly launching bikes. I don't know where that stands today, but with KTM having a full and expansive line of e-bikes, you got Yamaha big time into the bike space with you know, their own dedicated motor, their own product lines. There's Giant and other brands are you know adding distribution into motorcycle stores. What do you think it's going to take for that to really get traction? People buying them. I mean, the last probably four 20 group meetings I've had on the power sports side, a big portion of the meeting was actually, you know, what's going on with e-bikes? Should we bring them in? You know, because Giant is aggressively pursuing power sports dealers. And it makes sense to me. Yamaha, same thing. But I mean, we're just not seeing e-bike sales. I mean, we're seeing a few in Pittsburgh, but we're not seeing a lot. I understand there are certain pockets in the U.S. where e-bikes are selling really well. I think when they become uh, more accepted and, you know, the prices continue to come down, we'll probably see more of them. But, I mean, I'm just, I'm just not seeing it yet. And the Harley thing, everything's up in the air right now with Harley. This new CEO is changing everything. They pushed it back from, a you know, a May-June launch to a, a next-year launch, but we don't know when or if it's even going to happen. So I'm okay. not, not sure what's going to go on there. And how well will it work? I have no idea. Personally, I think I have a better shot of selling an e-bike through my power sports store than I do through the Harley store. Yeah, that makes sense to me because especially with, you know, if you had a Yamaha or you had a KTM or there is crossover for sure. There's plenty of motocross guys out there that are riding mountain bikes as their other recreation for sure. Exactly. Well, so I'm going to throw another question at you here that I think it'll be interesting to hear how Harley's tackling this and this is they we're watching the boomers age out george you know that i'm you and i are at the very tail oh, yeah. of that boomer group and we were the ones behind driving Harley's success back in the 80s and into the 90s but we're aging out so what is harley doing about this next generation are you concerned about it are you selling to this next generation where does harley fall out on this i'm just curious to see because we're seeing it a bit in the bike industry where you know, how do we market and cultivate that next generation? So I was on Harley's dealer advisory council. They call it the DAC and you get a three-year term. You basically spend three, four trips to Milwaukee and you spend three, four days with the powers that be at Harley 
to discuss whatever it is they want to discuss. And a lot of it is, you know, they want to understand retail. They want to understand what's going on on the sales floor. You know, they want to know what's happening. When I was on that DAC, we spent a lot of time talking about the baby boomers and, you know, what a huge bubble of population it was. And at, at that point, I mean, they, they knew it was coming. They talked about it for years and they knew it was coming. What they did is they marketed to new riders and they spent a lot of money marketing to new riders. It was, uh, you know, an age that they were going for younger riders. They focused on, you know, younger male. The second category was probably female of all ages. After that was, uh, you know, different ethnic groups. And they were fairly successful with it, but it wasn't enough to make up for, you know, the guys my dad's age that just couldn't ride anymore. I mean, my dad's in his 80s. You know, I think if he really wanted to, he could jump on a bike, but he's just not comfortable doing it anymore. And he hasn't been for quite a few years. So they came out with a trike. And, you know, guys in their 70s, they were jumping on trikes because they couldn't balance, you know, two-wheeler anymore. So that helped. But, you know, once they hit that late 70s, they just got out. So, you know, the big thing with Harley is they spent a ton of money on marketing. You know, as a dealer, a lot of it was walking the talk in that, you know, my staff at this point is very diverse. You know, when I first got into the Harley business, I felt very uncomfortable because I came from bicycles. My wife's still a physical therapist and, you know, she's fairly fit. And, you know, we grew up doing bicycle rides and, you know, you go to the shows and everybody was fit. I'd go to these Harley shows. You know, it was a whole bunch of guys that looked like Santa Claus wearing leathers and, uh, you know, a lot of enthusiasts. And I was very uncomfortable with it. And, you know, the, the language was different. You know, there's a lot of dropping the F-bomb and, you know, a lot of beer drinking. There was a lot of beer drinking at the bike too. But, you know, I was very uncomfortable with it first. But as I found people that were like-minded and that were business people, and, you know, I got very comfortable with it actually pretty quick. It only took me a couple, you know, a year or two years to get very comfortable with it. But, you know, back to the original question, Harley spent a lot of money in marketing. They hired, like, if you go to the, the motor company today, last time I was there was before the pandemic, and they have this big, giant conference area up on the, I think it's on the fifth or sixth floor. We have a podium and a stage, and there's, you know, a whole bunch of chairs and such. But they had a big LGBTQ luncheon, and it was for employees. And it wasn't like there was six people. It was, you know, there was more people than I could count. Now, this isn't the Harley Davidson that, you know, that I was introduced to back in the 80s. And my dealerships are the same way now. I'm going to tell you that the bulk of my managers right now are female. My right hand, Lisa, she's our general manager and our controller. And she's been here over 10 years, you know, female, single mom of two. That's not the way this business was. I mean, I have African-American employees. I have gay employees. It's not what it was. So I think walking the talk is part of it. You've got to have people on the floor. You've got to have people at the motor company that walk the talk and they know and understand this. And, you know, they bring their friends in. And that's how it looks now. It's a whole different ballgame. Does that make sense? Have you heard of P2 groups and wondered what they are? P2 stands for the Profitability Project. And while profitability is at the focus of everything we do, we do so much more. P2 group members share their expertise and their insights. They ask questions and they exchange resources to make sure every member is profitable and successful in every aspect of bike shop ownership. Reach out today so we can tell you more. Yeah, no, you tapped into that next question, which was, I remember when you and I were talking earlier about you coming to speak at the IBD Summit, and we, we had a great conversation about 
diversity because it is a, an issue for the bike industry and it's we face this challenge i mean we are not actively as an industry recruiting people different ethnicities we're just not it's an old white you know male industry and it's that's not going to be sustainable we've got to start thinking as our culture and our society has evolved we as an industry need to evolve and um, i loved hearing those stories about what harley was doing and i believe you at one point you, you mentioned that they were looking to recruit from a customer standpoint hispanic and african-american and there were incentives and prioritizations on bikes that were in limited supply to those retailers that could demonstrate that they were actively engaging in those communities to recruit that customer. Is that still something yes. that's active within Harley? Yes, it is. Now, Harley has a point system. They call it Bar and Shield, which is their logo. You get Bar and Shield points for jumping through different hoops. And they're typically a reward, not a punishment. Although if you do really badly, you can get put into a, uh, I don't know what you call it, Harley jail, where you've got to improve or your franchise is in jeopardy. But they, yeah, they do reward on points. I mean, I, I've tried to get my wife to reward me for points, and she just won't do it. But I, I mean, I can tell you it works. Um, you know, we watch the points. We want the points. You win a trip at the end. You can win. Like, we've had trips to Madrid. We've had trips to, we went to uh, Ireland. You know, they have these, these wonderful trips every year. And you're basically spending time with the who's who of dealers and all, you know, then the Harley execs. And you're, you're going to dinner with them. You're going on tours. You know, there's so much of this business that's relationship. It's so important is the relationship side. Yes, they definitely, you get rewarded for jumping through the right hoops. Well, because I think it, that's what it really it comes down to is it's, we can talk about it at the supply level that we need more diversity. We need this, we need that. And we can go out and try to recruit for, you know, employment at the corporate wholesale level. But if we're going to really tech, if we're going to embrace diversity, we've got to start at the retail level. In my opinion, we've got to go out into those communities and get those ethnicities involved in the sport, whether it's motorcycles or bicycles. And I think there needs to be incentives and tools provided to retailers on how to go do it. Because I think it's it all sounds well and good, but until you hand somebody some toolkit that says, here's how you go do it, it may never happen. And unfortunately, I think that's where we are in the bike industry. What I failed to mention with Harley is, you know, all of my time in the bicycle industry and all of my time in the power sports industry, it's a push business model. You know, the vendors want you to buy more products. They'll give you a reward if you buy more products. They give you a reward if you sell more products. But it's push, push, push. With Harley, to get vehicles, you have to jump through those hoops and you have to get points or you don't get more vehicles. So it's a pull system. So for me to get new Harleys to sell, I got to jump through hoops or I don't get them. But what brand besides Harley Davidson? has that, you know, I don't know what the word is, but I mean, I don't know another brand that could get away with that. I mean, if Honda said that to me, I'd be, you know, I love you, Honda. You make some of the greatest products on the planet, but, you know, I'm just going to sell the other brand. It's called um, leverage. You know, it's Harley, called... it's the exact opposite. They, <laughs> they have leverage. They do. You they have that. leverage. Exactly. Yep. That's, and we that's want that product, thing. so we're going to jump through the hoops. And typically, it's making good business decisions jumping through the hoops. I mean, Harley's not a perfect world, and I, you know, I could spend hours talking about some things that I don't like with Harley. But you know, for the most part, if you make good business decisions, you get rewarded by getting more vehicles, and vehicles drives everything else for us. If I sell a new Harley Street Glide, I know that that person's going to spend X amount of dollars on parts and accessories. They're going to spend X amount of dollars on average on clothing. 
they're going to spend X amount on service over the next three to five years. So you, you want to sell that vehicle to capture all those other dollars. Um, the other thing I didn't touch on was the you know diversity. I didn't intentionally try to hire you know most of my managers being female. It just happened. These ladies were the best person to be in that position. And the same with you know other ethnic groups that we have working here or people that you know uh, have different sexual preferences than I do. I don't care about that stuff. I don't care if you're pink, blue, orange. I don't care what car you drive, you know, what color you dye your hair, what, you know, if you like men, female, dogs, I don't care. It's about doing a good job. I spend more time with the people I work with in my own family. You know, I like to surround myself with people that I like and people that do a good job and it just happened. So it wasn't like it was intentional for us. No, it's great to hear that too. And it's great. I, you know, I think motorcycle has a more diverse audience in general than bike. I, but, and I could be wrong, but I, I feel that in my gut that it's, it's been more diverse, especially in the street world. So you have a unique situation there. And I believe that the bike industry can start to find more diversity by starting with getting more people on bikes. If we can create passionate cyclists out of, you know, newcomers that are coming into the space now, those people become the feeders to the wholesale level to the whole i mean everything starts the diversity starts to expand but it to me it almost starts at the consumer enthusiast level makes sense so george i first of all i want to thank you for your time today and uh for the conversation but i before we tap out i wanted to just put one last thing in front of you and just say you got any advice for our bike retailers out there today? Anything, any pearls of wisdom that you could share or would like to share? So I belong to this business group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. And I actually joined it because remember Jim Bellis from the Bicycle Exchange in D.C.? Sure, sure. Jim is who got me involved with YPO. YPO has been an awesome organization. It has opened many doors for me, just like the NBDA board did. You know, Dan Thornton talked in the... Uh, webinar that he did not too long ago about, you know, how the people that you meet being on the NBDA board. I mean, you know, my first NBDA meeting, I'm sitting there with, you know, Jim Ballas, who was like, you know, he was a god. He had 13 stores in the DC market. I met Jay Graves through the NBDA board. I met Chris Kegel. I mean, Chris was on the uh, board for CABDA back in the day. And when oh, yeah. CABDA was blowing up, I was like, we got to get Chris Kegel on our board. You know, they're a great guy. In fact, I used to go see Chris when I was in Milwaukee visiting Harley. I'd go have dinner with him or we, you know, we hang out even if it was for a few minutes, we just meet up. But I got to meet people like that being on the NBDA board. That was huge for me. YPO was huge for me. 20 groups, 20 groups are still huge for me. And it gets to a point like, you know, on a board, like even Harley's DAC, a dealer advisory council, the first year you're learning everything there is to learn about Harley corporate. The second year you're engaged like crazy. The third year you're like, get me the F out of here. I've had enough of this. <laughs> but, you know, the people you meet and the quality of retailer, I mean, you are who you hang out with. You know, when you're hanging out with the likes of, you know, Chris Kegel, you're going to bounce great ideas off each other and you're going to learn from each other and you're going to help each other. And when you're in a 20 group, I mean, some of the dealers are in 20 groups that I've been in because I'm in a 20 group for the Harley stores and I'm in a 20 group for the Power Sports store. So I have three trips a year for each of those and numerous webinars now, these Zoom webinars, we're on these things. I mean, during the pandemic, my 20 group, we saved each other's butts through the pandemic. I mean, I was the first one to get shut down in Pennsylvania. I shared you know, detailed information of what was going on when we were getting shut down and all the uncertainty. And you know, this is what I'm doing, guys. You know, I laid everybody off. 
I told everybody to sign up for employment. I shut off, you know, my, all my advertising. I shut off cycle trader. I, I called the garbage company and shut off the garbage pickup. And the guys in the 20 group were like thanking me when they got shut down, at least not all of them got shut down, but the guys that got shut down, they're like, George, you gave us a list of what to do. We didn't have to come up with that list. And then when those guys were reopening before I did, they were telling me what was going on. Those guys in my power sports group were like, George, how much inventory you got? I said, God, between three stores, two Harley and a metric store, I'm probably sitting on six million bucks worth of inventory. I'm scared to death. I don't know when our governor is going to let us open. We're going into busy season. They're like, George, buy more inventory. I'm like, what? I'm not buying any more inventory. You guys are crazy. They're like, buy more inventory. We've sold through all our inventory and we've already bought what's in the U.S. There is no more inventory. If you don't place orders, you're not going to get anything. So I placed orders and I got a full showroom right now because the guys in the 20 group, you know, we don't compete. We share everything. We were texting every night. We were calling. In fact, we still call each other almost daily. But, you know, we saved each other's butts. So, you know, join a 20 group. If you get the opportunity to be on something important like the NBDA board, my God, the people you meet and the things you learn, you don't get that from a college education. YPO, you know, you got to be pretty big volume to get into YPO, but there are other organizations like it that are uh, more broad based. It's not just, you know, your industry. God, what else can I tell you? I think when we did the, the bicycle business conference, we talked about vote with your dollars, support the vendors that have, you know, business models or the same ideals as you do. And the ones that don't, no matter what their name is, drop their ass. Um, I was a Polaris dealer. They're one of the highest volume off-road vehicle companies on the planet. I did not like their business model. In fact, I hated it. I dropped Polaris and it cost me some money to drop them. But you know what? I'm in a much better place today not having to deal with Polaris. Bicycle vendors, I don't know who's who anymore, so I, I don't, can't speak to that. Beyond that, God, what else can I tell you? Manage your expenses. Lemco and the 20 groups, Sam Danzler and Tony Gonzalez from Garage Composites, these guys are always saying, you're not going to go out of business by having too much inventory. What do you got too much inventory? You know, they're always looking at inventory levels and how much can you sell. And, you know, we have floor plans that can be big, big numbers. So we, we really watch our expenses. You know, it's not just about selling more product. Training, 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 training. Take advantage of everything you can do. I mean, I'm a sponge. I'm not the brightest guy. I just, you know, I'm a sponge. I'm just always trying to learn. Boy, you just put the ball on the tee for me. And I will say this, and I mean this in sincerity. Brandy and the board at the NBDA has been, they've been working their butts off to help retailers. And there are tools and resources that are available today that can truly help every retailer that's out there, joining the P2 groups, the webinars that she's got going on. She's revamped the website. She's just, she's kicking ass as the executive director. She's doing a fantastic job. And I think, you know, the industry, the retailers who shrug their shoulders at the NBDA need to take another look. There was some, a period where it was a little off course, but it's back. And since she's taken the helm, it's really become a valuable resource to bike shops out there and you're crazy to not take advantage of it. That's if I could say anything, that's what I'd like to wrap this up with is, is you know, this is a, a clear demonstration of that is putting these podcasts together. They're not easy. It takes time. There's an investment to be made, but there are great lessons learned in all of this. And George, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this. Great to catch up. Let's stay connected. And I'm sure our paths are going to cross in the not too distant future, my friend. Hey, before I hang up, I want to say that I wish we had the NBDA in the motorcycle industry. We do not have an organization like the NBDA here. 
and we could really use it, especially right now. Because even though things are booming, if you made bad decisions, you're out of business. And there are a crap load of dealers closing up right now, Harley and Power Sports both. Wow. Well, great insight. Rally cry. Go get them, Brandy. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Thank you.